0: Good afternoon, everyone. So we're going to now have our fungal update. And uh, please look at my conflicts of interest I already told you earlier today. I do study, clinical studies, and I have been a consultant for several companies. So the main objective for the next uh, 45 minutes or so is to really learn more about onychomycosis, And we're going to look at the oral drugs, the topical drugs, how to diagnose it, and everything in between. If there's time, we'll talk about tenecapitis and a couple other things. First of all, what is onychomycosis? Onychomycosis literally means fungal infection of the nail unit. We know that it it is more common in toenails than fingernails. It's caused by mostly dermatophytes, but also some non-dermatophytes and yeast candida. And there are several different subtypes. The most common subtype is distal lateral subungual onychomycosis, where the fungus enters in the region here, in the distal region of the nail uh, bed, as almost an extension of tinea pedis. So it it, it infects the region of the hyponychium and progresses from the distal to proximal region of the nail bed and this is another patient with distal lateral subungual onychomycosis, and all the drugs we use are indicated for this and only for this type of onychomycosis. In order to make a diagnosis, it's helpful to look for evidence of tinea pedis. Look between the toe webs, look at the bottom of the feet, and my mantra is no tinea pedis, no onychomycosis. Of course, you need to treat tinea pedis too, and you may or may not treat it with the oral drug you're gonna give, or not give, because there's topical drugs coming. And the newest armamentarium for treating tinea pedis is naftifine 2% cream and gel, which is the most potent antifungal we have uh, prescription. And it's indicated once a day for two weeks for tinea pedis. Though if you're treating a really rotten case like this, where the whole bottom of the foot is involved, I would do it for a month, once a day for a month. Uh, And when you tell the patient to apply the product, they need to apply it to the bottom of the foot, in between the toes, and about an inch above where you see the rash. So not just where you see it, but go about an inch above there. So you cover the whole area. And I generally recommend once a day for a month. What else may tell you uh, that the patient has onychomycosis besides the presence of tinea pedis? And that is... Dermatophytomas. So, dermatophytomas are essentially a, a dermatified abscess, like an aspergilloma is an abscess. This is a, an abscess of dermatophytes. And when you see this in a nail, this is the only thing that will, that will look like this. And you see these yellow to orange streaks or patches. Uh, generally, this heralds a very bad prognosis. So, when I see this, I know this is not going to be easy to treat. And this is a dermatophytoma, and one thing you could do when you treat this, if you are using an oral drug, is to clip back uh, some of the nail. There's an abscess under there. You could take a curette and scrape it out, and you could fill it with an antifungal cream, such as the the naphtaphen cream, uh, if you wish. So streaks and patches are fungal abscesses. When you see this, you know it's onychomycosis. Nothing else will do this uh, presentation, and it's a grim prognosis. All right, other types of onychomycosis are, are shown here. This is proximal subungual. Here, the fungus allegedly invades under the cuticle and works its way under the nail plate, and it occurs in people who are HIV-infected. And when HIV was a new disease, um, this was reported as pathognomonic for HIV, and it occurs early in the course of disease. But now that we know more about it, we do see this occasionally in people who are immunocompromised on anti-cancer treatments or so forth. And the nails are white, uh, but the white is discoloration under the nail plate where the fungus is growing. Um, this is proximal white subungual onychomycosis or proximal subungual. The fungus is under the nail plate and for some reason goes under the cuticle, although some authors have actually speculated that it disseminates to the nail, uh, but that's another story. This is proximal white subungal onychomycosis. And I'm sorry, proximal white subungal onychomycosis caused by trichophyton rubrum. And uh, I said already it's indicative of HIV, and it's difficult to treat. White superficial onychomycosis is shown here. Here are the fungus. This is white also. But if you take a 15 blade, you can scrape the white off unlike the other one where a 15-blade would not scrape it off, so it's external, and what happens here is the fungus directly penetrates the nail plate. And one dermatophyte can do this, but mostly non-dermatophyte molds. So you see a white nail, you say, hmm, it's leukonychia. You can take your 15-blade, scrape it off. That might cure the patient, but I usually use a topical antifungal in addition to cure the patient. So you could scrape it, use a topical antifungal or both. And it's caused by one dermatophyte, trichophyte mentagrophytes, and some non-dermatophyte molds. And those are the types of onychomycosis, white superficial. However, if you don't treat, it can progress to a totally dystrophic nail. So the patient walks into you with a thick, ugly toenail, and you have no idea that it was white superficial onychomycosis. But they would grow a non-dermatophyte mold, and that's going to be harder to treat. There are, there are other non dermatophytes that can cause onychomycosis. They come up occasionally, and I have colleagues frequently email me and say, hey, I grew this in a nail. Is it significant? And some of them are. Some of them aren't. Uh, scopular eopsis, are definitely significant. You're welcome to email me if something is growing in your nail and you don't know what to do with it because often it's a contaminant. Uh, this is scapulariopsis. It's a beautiful fungus. Actually, it's quite pretty, but uh, maybe if you have it in your nail, you wouldn't think so. This is scotilidium dimidiatum. This can also cause tinea pedis, so it's a big, big problem. We don't see it in the U.S. too often, but it is seen in certain parts of the planet, particularly the Southeast Asia, Thailand, is quite common. This is candida onychomycosis, where candida can actually invade the entire nail plate, and cause almost a granuloma under the nail in patients with chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. All right, so now you saw the clinical presentations of onychomycosis, how do we diagnose it? You diagnose it by doing uh, your clinical presentation, but I like to have confirmation. So you can do a KOH, which I find very onerous to do. You might be better doing a PAS stain and clipping the nail and sending it to your dermatopathologist and ask for a PAS. Be careful if you use PAS, because you need the dermatopathologist to tell you that hyphae are seen, hyphae, because if they see quote-unquote spores, I don't know how to take that, because that could be junk. You don't know what that really is. I like them to see hyphae or parts of hyphae. Uh, a fungal culture is ideal, because then you know exactly what you're treating, and probably in the next few years, PCR analysis will be done, and. A probe will be just put in the specimen and it'll come out what the organism is but we don't have that readily available now this is a positive KOH using fluorescent microscope and it's quite easy because the fluorescent microscope scope is quite specific this is PAS this PAS you definitely see hyphae here and that's what you want to see to make a diagnosis So if you have a positive PAS, you know the patient has onychomycosis, you just don't know what it is. So I generally assume it's a dermatophyte, but if they don't respond to treatment, maybe they're that percent that has a non-dermatophyte infection. The most common dermatophyte that causes onychomycosis is this organism called Trichophyton rubrum, which is a quite interesting fungus. It actually was first found here in the United States in 1922 in Birmingham, Alabama, where I live now. And it was, uh, there was a paper published in some, pa- in some old journal, and it talks about a case in Birmingham of toenail onychomycosis. And it was from a soldier from World War I who probably picked it up, as soldiers often do, and brought it back to the US. And when you think about that one case in the US, that was the first case. And now more than 10% of the country has onychomycosis. So it makes you wonder what's going to happen in the future, how high is this percent going to go? Uh, You know, it's 10 percent, more common as you get older, 1 percent if you're 18 or less, and over 50, I'm sorry, over 70, uh, about half the people have it, depending on what paper you do, you read. But the overall prevalence is probably 10 to 12 percent. So what do you do? Well, we should be treating this aggressively. There are three oral drugs. terbinafine and itraconazole are FDA-approved for onychomycosis. Fluconazole is not approved in this country. It is in other countries. But there was a huge study with an N of over 1,000. And the, the company decided not to pursue the indication, but it could have because it, it actually is the most effective of these three drugs. And then two topical uh, Drugs are coming out, as I alluded to, and we'll talk about those. And then laser, what do we do with laser? So we'll talk about all that in the next few minutes. So terbenafin is probably the workhorse for all of us for onychomycosis because it's generic, because it's cheap. You can buy 90 pills at many discount pharmacies for $10. And compare that to $10 a pill before it became generic you know, 10 years ago. So it's a huge savings. And I give it once a day for a month three months. Um, And that's the package label, daily for three months. Um, And the cure rate with that is roughly uh, 38%, at least by strict FDA criteria. Um, But other studies have shown higher cure rates in the 50%. But when the FDA does a study and uses their own criteria, you have to have a perfectly normal nail at the end. And after there's been an infection for years, You know, the nail may not be normal, so mycological cure is in the 70%, but complete cure, meaning the nail is completely normal, too, is less. But most of us realize that we do cure most patients who uh, have onychomycosis. Now, someone asked me this morning, well, how do I dose it? I dose it per label for 90 days. However, if you have one of those dermatophytomas, I would just give a second course. I'll give another three-month course one month later. I know that the drug stays in the nail for one month at least at therapeutic levels, maybe six weeks. But about a month afterwards, I'll have the patient take another 90 pills if they have severe disease. And the cost is pretty reasonable. So uh, that's what I do. And if needed, I'll give them a third course. Very few people need that, but that's what I do to maximize uh, cure results. Itraconazole is another drug that's FDA-approved for onychomycosis. It was actually came out before terbenafin. Unlike terbenafin, terbenafin is a drug that's only anti-dermatophytes. So it's like griseofulvin; It covers only dermatophytes. It doesn't cover candida. It doesn't cover anything else. So if you use terbenafin and the patient's not getting better, either one, your diagnosis is wrong, two, your diagnosis is wrong, or three, uh, they have a non-dramatophyte. Now, there are some instances of trichophyte and rubrum resistant to terbinafine, and I have seen those patients. They come to my office, and those people would do better with itraconazole. And itraconazole is a, a very good drug. It does have some warts on it, shall we say. Uh, how do we dose it? Well, the label dose is 200 milligrams a day for three months. Uh, Also, if you use it for fingernails, it's 400 milligrams a day for one week, one week a month for two months, or maybe three months. But most of us, uh, because of pharmacoeconomics to save money, use 400 milligrams a day for one week for the first month of four months for most patients. It's off-label, technically, but it is um, verified by many studies published in the literature, so, in other words, if I see somebody today and November 14th and make a diagnosis of onychomycosis and decide to use itraconazole, I would tell them the first week of December, the first week of January, the first week of February, and the first week of March, they're going to take their uh, p- pills. Two with breakfast, two at dinner. That's what I would do. Uh, the cure rate per label is 14%, low. But again, there were very strict criteria, and other studies have shown significantly higher results. And I think that's important to emphasize. There are drug interactions with the traconisol. So when you give it one week a month, I think you have less drug interactions because you're only on drug for one week. The biggest problem, practically speaking, is the statins, and so many people take statins. So what happens if you take statin with the traconisol is the level of the statin could increase, And statin toxicity could be uh, clinically shown as muscle issues, rhabdomyolysis. So what I have patients do is just not take the statin the week they're taking the itraconazole, if that's okay with their primary care physician. But there are drug interactions, but the biggest is statins. It's also contraindicated in patients with uh, certain heart problems. Uh, I think it's something you should be aware of. It's extremely rare, but nonetheless it can um, uh, does have a negative inotropic effect in some patients. So when do I select a triconazole, given the fact that it's more money than um, terbinafine, Well, anyone who failed terbinafine, that would be what you do next. Or they couldn't take flucon- uh tribenofin. Or they um, had any reaction to terbinafine. I mean, that may be what you do. You may also have patients who want to take this for other reasons. There's also a new... Uh, tablet out that's 200 milligrams that's better absorbed and better tolerated than the old itraconazole capsule the trade name is onmel. mel it stands for onychomycosis melt extrusion and uh, there was a big study to get it approved and it's so it's one 200 milligram tablet so if you're using the pulse it would be one 200 milligram tablet with breakfast one 200 milligram tablet with dinner So you only need two tablets a day for a week, which is much easier for patients to take than two 100 milligram capsules. Plus this is more bioavailable, so it makes more sense to use this drug. All right, the third drug that we use for onychomycosis is fluconazole. I use this a lot also, but let me emphasize it's not FDA approved for onychomycosis, but there was a huge study that uh, looked at this drug. And the study looked at it one day a week not for four months, but it continued on until the nail's normal. So it went on, I think the average was about nine months in the study, and they compared 150 milligram dose to 300 milligrams to 450 milligrams. We don't have uh, all those doses available to us, so I order a 200 milligram tablet of fluconazole and have them take it every Friday, and I say fungal Fridays. Every Friday, fungal Fridays, you take your one pill, or perhaps if they're a larger person or they're Uh, You think they're gonna be more challenging to treat? Two 200 milligram pills every Friday, fungal Friday. Uh, Okay, if you're ready for this, you can also recommend toes days. So toes days or fungal Fridays. They can take their fluconazole, depending on your mood. And the cure rates were actually amazingly high. Uh, This, as I said, had the highest cure rate packaged uh, from their pivotal trials. Um, the 450-milligram dose was higher than tribenafin, but it's not FDA-approved. The paper was published in the JAD. Richard Scheer was the key, uh, first author. It, uh, for some reason, never never fo- followed an indication, but I do use this drug quite a bit, and I don't worry about drug interactions. I use it for fingernail onychomycosis because that's almost all candida, and it works fine for candida. So any candida infection, I told you this morning about perinicchia, I use it for peronychia. Children with onychomycosis, I like the drug for children. They have tiny nails, it's not gonna take long for the nail to grow out, and you dose it based on body weight, probably six milligrams per kilogram just once a week, Uh, very simple to do. And patients who are polypharmacy, they're on multiple medicines, one extra pill a week is not too onerous, or two pills if you give two pills on Fridays. So we have three good drugs. You have to just know when to give it. Uh, again, the advantage of, of terbinafine is it's cheap. Uh, the advantage of itraconazole is that it's broad spectrum. It kills candida and the non-dermatophytes. And the advantage of fluconazole is it's once a week, but you have to take it till it grows, the nail grows out. Curates, uh, just to show you, they go all over the place. And, um, and I'm not sure that it's really worth even discussing because we can cure most of our patients as long as your patient, and you keep working with, the, with your patient on uh, uh, compliance and you know being sure you're of the diagnosis. Now we all have patients who have severe onychomycosis, and I would say severe is if your nails are 75% or more involved. And this patient not only has extensive disease, but that's a dermatophytoma. It's, not, it's an abscess under both nails. So we know this is going to be challenging. And these patients are going to need extra, extra treatment. So I would use two or three courses of tribenafin. I would, If that isn't working, you can do itraconazole for several pulses. A pulse would be that week, one week a month. And I would also add a topical antifungal and uh, the 2% uh, naphtaphyme. Uh, cream or gel, I like the gel on the nail, would be um, an option you can use to kind of give it a boost um, to your curate. Laboratory monitoring. So do we do laboratory monitoring? I do. Um, I do for all three drugs, oral drugs. I think it's reasonable to get a CBC and hepatic panel before starting. And um, there used to be something in the package label for tribenafin that you needed to do it again at six weeks, but that was removed about 10 years ago, so you don't need to recheck it unless you're just worried about the patient, they're, you know, delicate, fragile, or they're on m- multiple medicines, or they're a lawyer, I mean, there's something that makes you worried. So otherwise, I don't check, because I just give 90 pills. and. Um, Um, see them back after three months, and then decide, then I may get another one at at the end of three months if I'm going to do another three months of treatment. So we have, um, um, you can do periodic monitoring, though, in patients with comorbidities and so forth. All right, so let's just pause and think about what we have for onychomycosis. And these questions always come up. First question, is it of any value to use systemic antifungals for onychomycosis? So there's doubting Thomases out there that say, don't bother, don't treat it. And I'm going to say, yes, we can cure patients. And you don't want to have a persistent infection in your nail, which could lead to recurrent tinea pedis, cellulitis, and other complications. So there's a lot of reasons to treat. The second question I get, is the labeled usage the best treatment protocol? I'd say... For tribenafin, yes, but for itraconazole, no. I think pulse dosing is better. There have been higher cure rates with pulse dosing. It's easier for patients because it's cheaper. You're taking less pills. And fluconazole is already off-label, so um, when you use fluconazole, you're using it off-label, and I tell people that, but um, it's quite effective. All right, so those are our three oral drugs. Now let's think, well, what else do we have? And there's a lot of patients out there that for some reason just don't want an oral drug. They say, I don't want to worry about anything. My doctor tells me it's going to bother my liver. Or they have something that makes it contraindicated for an oral drug. So there are topical therapies coming out. So let's look at the two topical drugs coming out. And I think all of us would agree that topical treatment would be preferable, if at all possible. Because you wouldn't have to worry about laboratory monitoring. You wouldn't have to worry about side effects. Uh, at least systemic side effects. You could have a local adverse effect, but I think that would be considered more acceptable than a systemic. But no topical therapy up till now has been approved as monotherapy. Cyclopyrox, for example, uh, Penlac, you can use. Um, the cure rate is 5 to 8 percent, but you have to do frequent nail debreedment. That's every month, they were, uh, those people in the study had their nails aggressively debreeded. So that gave it a boost. So so technically, it's not monotherapy. Uh, It's been a challenge formulating drugs that penetrate the nail. So you have to overcome the thickness of the nail plate um, and um, other factors that make a topical drug relatively uh, difficult to become FDA-approved. And I can tell you that over the past 10 years, I've done many studies on topical antifungals for this indication that haven't worked. So if you go to the FDA website, there are tombstones of all these other drugs that have failed. And, you know, some had good chance, but it just didn't work. So no new medicines have been approved for onychomycosis in more than 10 years. And one of these two drugs will be the first. I don't know which will be first, but I'll first talk about uh, affinaconazole. And this is what affinaconazole looks like. It comes out as a solution, as you see here. It's not a lacquer, like the Penlac or Cyclopirox. It is, uh, uh, because it's a solution, it can be put on, under, and around the nail, so you can get it right to the site of the infection. It also is a small molecular weight, and therefore, uh, theoretically, should be able to penetrate the nail better. In order to get any drug approved, you have to have two pivotal studies. And the two studies, I can briefly go over, um, enrolled many patients, Um, And again, it was a 48-week study, and people, the subjects, put the drug on, under, and around the nail. And uh, the age of the subjects was, I think, up to age 70, uh, 65 or 70, 70 probably. And they all had distal lateral subungual, and mild to moderate, which was defined as up to 50% involved. So, you know, moderate disease. And these are people who were in the study. You could see the patients who had you know, you know just the typical patient that would just come into your office. And uh, there were inclusion and exclusion criteria, but the main thing for, this, for us to know now is that you had to have a dermatophyte. So if you didn't grow a dermatophyte, you couldn't get in. And so there were two studies. And so let's go to the meat of this and forget the gravy and the potatoes. I'll just give you the meat. So the cure rate I think the most important cure rate for these studies is the mycological cure. Because when you use an antifungal, you want to get rid of the fungus, so you need mycological cure. And the mycological cure was in the 50% range, which I think is quite decent, 55 and 53%. And actually, it was very favorably compared to the oral drugs. Now, they weren't toe-to-toe studies. The oral drugs had more severe nails, but at least it gives you the idea that this drug was in the same ballpark as the oral drugs, terbenafin uh, and itraconazole, uh, and fluconazole too, which isn't on here. Complete cure, however, is going to lag behind us, I told you, because it takes longer for the nail to look normal, if it ever will look normal, because it's been infected for, for probably years. But you can see as time went on, the nail continued to improve. And at the end, it was still on its sharp improvement uh, and almost or complete cure was in the 20% range. So I think to take home is, this looks very promising. These are people who were in the study. This is baseline of three different subjects. This is at the midpoint, week 24, and you can see the nail is definitely improved. And the bottom at the end. The nails look pretty darn good, and they didn't start so good. So the drug did work. And almost complete cure, to me meant, well, if they treated another month, they probably would have been cured. And you could see this nail was really wretched. That's pretty wretched. And at the end of the study, there's just a wee bit left, wee bit left, and probably another month uh, would have been 100% cured. So that drug, I don't know when it's coming out. I'm betting six months. Could be a year. I don't know. But I'm telling patients that we have two drugs coming out on whichever... um, you know, whichever one you end up using, whichever comes first, we'll probably be giving to our patients as soon as it's out. The second drug is a, is a unique a molecule. It's called, the generic is tavaborol, tavaborol. And if you look at this structure, it's a ver, another small molecular product, smaller than the previous chemical, and it has a boron in it. We don't have anything else with boron in it, which makes it kind of interesting. And this drug was selected because of its broad, its broad spectrum. It's effective against dermatophytes, candida, and non-dermatophytes. So it was broad spectrum. And they compared it with other similar drugs. And also it was selected amongst other drugs because it penetrates the nail. And they were using Penlac or Cyclopirox as the comparator, 2,240 times more than cyclopyrox. So, it seems like it's broad spectrum, it penetrates the nail, it has a good chance to work. And uh, in the phase two studies, the nails um, were growing up beautifully. Baseline, three months, uh, six months, and that nail would continue to grow out. Another baseline, six months, three months, the nail continued to grow out. The phase three study uh, had results similar to the prior study I reviewed. There were uh, two studies done. One had 600 patients, both had close to 600 patients. And like the previous study, it was a double blind study. This, it was done in the US and Canada. And uh, it, the drug was applied on and around the nail, like the previous study, and like the other drug. It's a liquid, so we have two solutions which I think is a nice thing to do, because that way you can get it un, under around the nail and get into those nooks and crannies that uh, where the fungus is lurking. And so the uh, screening and then the treated, the bottom line is um, it was, there were two studies, 48 weeks, and the cure rate was in the 30% range. Um, And clear, almost clear, like the previous study, was in the 20-some percent range. So both drugs showed efficacy. Uh, Both are very exciting, we just don't have them out. But you should know that they're coming and maybe by the AAD meeting in March, we'll know more about the data. And these are subjects in the study. So baseline, really wretched-looking nail, and at the end, this nail's about normal. That was only day 300, so it wasn't at the end. Baseline, Six months, and at one year, the nail was normal. Baseline, six months, here's a year, a normal nail. Baseline, you can see the the pattern here. These, you know, you are, they really are working. So both these drugs are are effective. Uh, I think that's the point I wanna make. Both will hopefully come out next year, which will be good for our patients. There's a third drug that's being studied called luliconazole. That's just, you may hear about this drug, so I'm mentioning it. It's just in phase two now, so it has a long way to go. All right, next I wanted to just mention lasers for onychomycosis. And the reason I'm going to do this is because everyone here probably gets asked about lasers. So let me give you the latest uh, information. Uh, First, we'll talk about a device, PDT. PDT does work in onychomycosis. It was first reported um, a few years ago in one poor old lady who couldn't take anything oral. They used the methyl ALA with the red light and uh, treated three times on a protocol. And let me just go right to the meat of this. And this is this subject before and after they were cured, mycological and clinical cure. And it worked. Unfortunately, in the US, we don't have that methyl ALA anymore. Uh, but they do in other countries, and it it, it did work in this study. Though the uh, authors do comment that they first had to remove the nail with urea, you can, they volved the nail with urea before they put the methyl a at la. So it is somewhat onerous, but you should know that that is one option for patients. There was also a clinical trial in Europe. It was just a one set study, one site uh, that did the same protocol of the previous PDT where they did the methyl ALA. They removed the nail with urea, used red light, and uh, three treatments. And the cure rate was uh, 43%, which was pretty good. I mean, that's in the range of the oral drugs that we have. So I thought, well, gee, this is a good option if we had the methyl ALA. PDT would certainly be an alternative when oral agents are contraindicated. And this this came from the study um, of PDT before and after. So PDT is not FDA approved. Chemical avulsing of the nail is labor intensive. Um, and the big problem is ML, MLA isn't available. But when it comes back, if it does, this might be something to do. All right, now laser. What about laser? I was, I was in New York not too long ago, and the uh, subway had a sign. Uh, come, you know, the doctor was advertising to have laser of the nail, charging a mere $1,500 a toenail. A bargain all right so does do does laser work I am NOT a laser guru but I have um, used this and I'll tell you what I think at the end first there was a paper I'm just gonna mention because you got to think well if it's gonna work it has to work somehow so let's figure out how it works and so these German researchers took a different laser um, and well, let's before I tell you about the German researchers, let's just think hypothetically that UV light we've known for more than a century does um, have some bactericidal effect. UVC has bactericidal effect, and we've known that for a century. So people have been thinking about how to use light to kill microorganisms for a long time. Uh, there are several lasers that are approved by the FDA, but they're approved by, as a device, and they're approved for the and this is important. Temporary increase of clear nails. This doesn't mean that they're cured. Temporary increase of clear nail in patients with onychomycosis. And these lasers here are all approved by the FDA for that indication. So now let me tell you about the German researchers. So how would it work? So they took several different lasers, these three here, and they played with it in their lab and they found it couldn't kill any fungus. That was interesting. Um, I did a similar study, which was published finally in the JAT in October, and we thought, well, if it kills, if lasers work, it's doing one of two things. One, you actually have a lethal effect from lasering the fungus, uh, or perhaps it's heat, and the temperature that you're getting in the nail is killing it. So we first used a heat kill experiment and found, yes, you can kill these organisms with heat, and uh, rubrum it took 50 degrees centigrade for 15 minutes this is not practical because the ouch point when you're putting heat on the, someone's toe and they say ouch and pull it away is 41 degrees 40 to 41 so it's definitely not practical you can't go to 55 to 50 degrees or higher for any period of time without a digital block so forget that um, plus when we heated it after a while um, you could see that the organism was still very happy because um, the spores were not killed. So then we took laser and lasered colonies, and we lasered pure colonies, and we also lasered dilute solutions of colonies, and we found, like the German researchers, no effect on fungal growth at all. In fact, when I looked at the fungi, I thought, hmm, they felt. I think they felt they were in the spa, you know, because they looked just as happy to me as they did uh, prior to laser. So much for that. So we came to this final conclusion that can fungal organisms be killed by heat, uh, temperatures tolerable to humans? No. You'd have to do a digital block. Can lasers directly be fungicidal on a growing fungal colony? We could not find it. Please keep in mind, I am not a laser expert. But I did have in my lab people from the university who are PhDs in laser physics. And we just couldn't do this. We tried for for several weeks um, playing with this. Now, colleagues in Japan, however, had different results. Without topical anesthetic, they used the same laser we did in the same kind of way we did and found results. However, their cure was defined as degree of turbidity. And even though the paper was written in English, and it's in your handout, I could not understand what they meant by degree of turbidity. But they felt that using the scale of turbidity, um, people were getting cured. So they had, 81% had uh, com- moderate to complete clearance of turbidity, whatever that is. So they felt it was helpful. So I, I don't think the final answer is out. Maybe it works in some other way. Um, we studied um, several patients. We treated 10 patients in our, in our um, center with laser and nobody improved. And you can um, um, f- look at the paper if you're interested. It was in October in the JAD. All right, so key points for onychomycosis. Oral antifungals are useful for onychomycosis. The least expensive is terbinafine. You should confirm the diagnosis prior to treating. There's soon-to-be-released effective topical antifungals, and laser and PDT may be coming out soon. I don't know. So now let's talk about some other fungal infections. Tinea or pityriasis versicolor, something we see all summer long. Some people, we even see it in the winter. The diagnosis is clinical. You see scaly patches uh, on the upper part of the body. So when you crush your arms like this, everything above it is at risk for getting the infection. So your upper chest, your upper arms, your upper back. And it can be hypopigmented or it can be uh, hyperpigmented or it can be a salmonish color. Uh, And it's uh, a a little yeast um, in the Malassezia species. How do we treat it? Well, the topical antifungals are uh, probably used the most. Cyclopirox, ketoconazole would be the two best ones from my experience to treat, uh, to treat tinea or pityriasis versicolor. I also like the shampoo. I use 2% ketoconazole shampoo. So what I do is have the patient wash their hair with it and then put it directly on their skin, leave it on for 10 or 15 minutes, rinse it off, and do that every couple days for a couple weeks. Now oral ketoconazole is coming off the market, so forget that, which leaves itraconazole or fluconazole as your alternative treatment. And itraconazole, 200 milligrams a day for five to seven days, is a wonderful treatment. And uh, I find it's very effective. Or you could use fluconazole, 200 milligrams a day for five to seven days. And I, you could do a two-prong attack, the oral uh, plus the topical, so you ha- have extra coverage. But ketoconazole is leaving the shells. Keep in mind that trebenopin doesn't work, griseofulvin doesn't work. Now a cousin of tinea versicolor is malassezia folliculitis, also known as pitosporin folliculitis, where you see kind of monomorphous pustules in the same areas you get tinea versicolor. Uh, it generally itches, often it's misdiagnosed as acne, but the patient's not getting better. Uh, you make a diagnosis, how? Culture, no. Because the, the organism is found on our skin, so a culture won't help you. So the only way to prove it is to do a skin biopsy. And you'll see the organism in the yeast state below the level of the epidermis. However, um, that's not easy to do, and you sometimes treat empirically. Because this is an infection of the follicle, and the sebaceous glands are in the follicle. I like itraconazole because itraconazole is lipophilic, so it gets into the sebum, and I use it 200 milligrams a day for two weeks. That's what I use. And I'd already told you that that melt-exclusion tablet would be better absorbed, so that would be one tablet a day for two weeks. Moving on to tinea capitis. Uh, tinea capitis is, um, is in the United States, quite common uh, in our young kids. The most common organism is Trichophyton tonsurans, and M. canis is the second most common. And it is um, uh, one of the most common infections that we see in children, tinea corporis. If you see tinea corporis in a child, I recommend you look at their scalp because they may also have tinea capitis. But children rarely get onychomycosis or tinea pedis. And I told you if they have onychomycosis, my favorite treatment is fluconazole. But going back to tinicapitis, the prevalence is 13% of school-age kids. And we did a study in Birmingham and also in Cleveland, and we came up with 13% school-age kids, culture positive. It presents with a variety of presentations. I'll just show you pictures. So you may have something resembling alopecia areata, but unlike alopecia areata, there's Scale, and there are probably some lymph nodes, posterior cervical or anterior cervical lymphadenopathy. You may see black dots if they have black hair. If they have red hair, you'll see red dots. Uh, that's called black dot tinea capitis. You may see pus. This is called a carrion. More pus, scale. This is an adult with tinea capitis. Now this lady had lupus. And she was given topical steroids for her lupus. She was on Plaquenil and topical steroids. But she was a schoolteacher. So what do you think happened to her? She got tinea capitis. And probably a risk was she was on all the topical steroids. So her lupus was getting worse. She was sent to me, and we cultured it, and she had tinea capitis. So don't forget, adults can get it too if they're particularly at risk. Most adults are women who are postmenopausal, but it's not common. Um, she was at risk because of the steroids. And this is another patient with capitis favus type. You diagnose it by clinically looking at it, and you can do a fungal culture or KOH. The question is, how do you get the culture? Um, Let's go right to the meat of it. I like um, my mantra is the fungus in the... When you see a child with hair loss, the fungus is guilty until proven innocent because it's really so common. So what I like to do is something non-threatening. You can use a t- toothbrush, a sterile toothbrush, because to, no one's gonna, no child will be afraid of you holding a toothbrush. Or you could do a 4x4 that has saline on it, or a Q-tip, a culturette that you might send to your the, to the, uh, bacteriology lab. Those are all fine ways of obtaining a scale without coming with forceps ready to pluck the hair out. This is a 4x4. You can see pieces of hair and you might pick up other things, but it's the hair that we're looking for. This is a positive KOH um, in a hair, and these are spores inside the hair. So you could see why the hair breaks, because what's holding it together are really just spores. This is a very contagious condition. The spores uh, last on fomites for a long time, so when you make a diagnosis, have the patient wash their uh, combs, their brushes, their hats, their barrettes, their, anything that they put on their hair. Clean their telephones with Clorox wipes. Uh, mom and dad, I sometimes give to family members ketoconazole shampoo or cyclopyrox shampoo um, to decontaminate them. And actually, Dr. Babel published this paper that one-third of adults exposed to a child with tinnicapetus are carrying it. And I've done similar work. And that's a lot of people. So we don't go ahead and treat everyone in the family with oral drugs traditionally, but maybe we should, but that's another story. But I use topical antifungal shampoos. And I find that at least helps reduce the shedding. And then I like to put a topical gel on the scalp uh, to immobilize the spores so the patient is less infectious. So you could use naphthafen gel or, or cyclopyrox gel on the scalp. Um, to reduce infectivity. And as a sidebar, you'll frequently get teachers who'll say, well, what do I do with the child? Are they contagious? And I write letters back saying, no. Okay, because the way I look at it is by the time the child sees me, they've already infected their friends and family members and other people's friends and family members. And then you give them an oral drug, which is starting to help. They use the antifungal shampoo, they put the antifungal gel on their scalp, so they shouldn't be shedding. Okay, that's that's where I come from, and you hate a kid to not go to school because of this. Uh, so griseofulvin is the gold standard. Uh, the dose is 15 to 25 milligrams per day. It's a high dose. Should it still be the standard? Um, I don't know. I don't use it as much anymore. The advantages: it's a liquid. The disadvantages: it's not easily to get anymore in Canada. They don't make it, and there's people who are allergic to griseofulvin. Keep in mind, whatever drug you give, patients may get what's called an eruption, which is short for dermatophytid, which is an rash that occurs usually on the scalp and works its way down. So you give little Johnny here um, something for capitus. Two days later, mom calls. Well, little Johnny has an allergy. Ideally, you see the patient back. Because if you see these lichenoid pinpoint papules that start here and rain down, it's not an allergy. It's an interruption, which is some hypersensitivity to killing the fungus, which is actually quite common. And I just give them hydrocortisone cream and say, this is good. The fungus is dying. That's why you're getting the rash. You don't need to stop. Uh, You really need to be sure your dose is high enough, 20 to 25 milligrams per kilogram. Otherwise, you may have failures. And there are true Grizzly-fulvin failures. I would recommend fluconazole and Um And let me just go to the meat of it. Um, fluconazole and terbenafin could be used. Uh, terbenafin is FDA approved. Fluconazole is not. But there was a big study uh, looking at this with an N of over 1,000. I did. I was an investigator for the study. and. Um, It worked fine, and the dose was six milligrams per kilogram per day, and they compared three weeks to six weeks. So I use six weeks of fluconazole, six milligrams per kilogram per day as an alternative to uh, grisalfolvin. And uh, let me just go right to the meat here. Um, Trebenafin, you can give too. Uh, Trebenafin did get FDA approval. It comes as these granules. Frankly, I can tell you I don't order the granules. I order generic because it's so cheap and you give it based on body weight and I treat for six weeks although um, uh, you might be okay with a little less uh, it was a sliding scale but um, comparing Griseofulvin to terbenafin let me just go right to the meat and um, let me go to the meat of it but the bottom line is if you weigh uh, over 35 kilograms it's, it's one tablet a 250 milligram a day If you weigh 25 to 35 kilograms, it's a half a tablet, which is 125 milligrams a day. If you weigh uh, under uh, 25 uh, 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 kilograms, um, I usually give uh, a quarter tablet alternating with a half. Uh, terbenafin does not work in m canis infection. It just doesn't work. So you have to be sure it's tetancerans. Fluconazole is broad spectrum. So if you're not sure what it is, I do like fluconazole for this indication because it works for everything, and uh, it's, it's reliable and safe. I don't check blood work with fluconazole. I don't. I, it's a very safe drug. It's FDA-approved for children. When, you, when I go um, into the NICU, there's lots of little babies on higher doses of fluconazole. Um, IV that I'm giving my patients who's healthy orally. I think it's a very safe drug. I'm very comfortable not checking blood work. When I give terbinafine. I worry a little more. I might check blood work. Our pediatric dermatologist uh, does check blood work at times, but not all the time. So you just have to see what your level of worry is. Um, you should go look at other pa- people. I go on fungal patrol, and look, this is the mother of an infected child. I ask the mother... Do you have anything? Oh no, no. But when you lifted up her hair, she had scale, and I said, "Okay, so what's this?" Well, I have dandruff. She had a little more than dandruff. She had tinea capitis, so she really needed an oral treatment. So, and I think that explained why little Johnny came to me with f- frequent relapsing tinea capitis. And tinea capitis is not for kids. This is an 88-year-old woman, 88, who had all these pustules in her scalp, she had it on her face, she had losing her hair, she was beside herself in her final days, her life's miserable. She had this for more than a decade. She had been on antibiotics, orally, someone gave her prednisone, nothing was working. She was, I, 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 so what I did was, well I saw pustules, so I did a bacterial culture, I did a fungal culture, and I did a biopsy. And uh, two days later, the biopsy came back first and it showed uh, tinea capitis. Then the culture confirmed tinea tinicapitis, and she was treated successfully. So uh, so that's tinicapitis. I already told you about onychomycosis in kids, and I use fluconazole. corporis in kids, risk factors are tinicapitis. That's Tinea corporis. You can pick a topical antifungal. I like the uh, uh, naftaphine. I like cyclopirox. And you can consider oral drugs too, depending on the particular patient. If you have wrestlers, I like to use ketoconazole shampoo as a body wash. You don't want terbinafine orally if they could have MKNIS. And these are the three drugs I use the most: uh, cyclopirox and naphthine, and either econazole or ketoconazole cream as the azole, depending on what comes up green light when you go to their, um, to their, uh, to when you do your electronic prescribing. All right, key points for tinea you need to confirm the diagnosis prior to treatment oral therapy is required at adjuvant therapy and we talked about topical therapy may be useful in kids with tinea and also useful in onychomycosis so thank you very much